Joel chapter 2, that's page 645 in most of the seat Bibles, if you're using one of those. And we're looking again, particularly at verses 12 to 17 of the chapter that Doug just read. Joel 2, 12 to 17. Have you ever been in a difficult spot in life? Maybe you were confused, maybe you were hurting, and you really needed guidance from God. You really wanted to hear from God. Well, there's a scene in a movie that I love called Bruce Almighty where Bruce, the character played by Jim Carrey, um, is in such a situation. He's, um, he's confused, he's facing a crisis, and, and as it culminates, he finds himself driving down a lonely road at night, praying, asking God, begging God for guidance and direction. Let's watch what happens. You can get the sound going. Tell me what's going on. What should I do? Just restart it. Give me a signal. Just refire it. Maybe do the slide before it and then do that slide again. Okay, God. You want me to talk to you? What should I do? Give me a signal. I need your guidance, Lord. Please send me a sign. Oh, what's this joker doing now? All right. It's funny, but there's also a serious point here, isn't there? Because we've all done that, right? We've all found ourselves at one time or another asking God for direction, but, but speeding right past what God was trying to tell us. At least I've done it too many times. And, and, and I have to ask, what is it about my heart that causes me to do that? We're continuing our series this morning on, uh, on our hearts. We're focusing this fall on the kinds of hearts that God is trying to give us, the kinds of hearts we need to develop if we're going to grow into our identity as God's people. Back in September 1st, we spent three weeks uh, focusing on the new hearts that God gives us when his Holy Spirit comes into our heart and makes them new. And now we're spending these, these past three weeks looking at today's text in Joel 2, which is urging us to develop repentant hearts. Hearts which admit when we get off track, when we go astray. Hearts which then turn back to God. Repentant hearts are hearts which do what Bruce failed to do in the movie. They're hearts which recognize the signs. Or for those of you who are familiar with this language, hearts which recognize the kairos moments that God puts in our paths, the signs, and which then slow down and turn around and go back in the direction that God is wanting us to go. These are the kinds of hearts that that God is calling us to have through the prophet Joel in today's passage. So Joel's message to us in today's passage is basically this. Turn around from your heart. Give yourself wholly back to God. Why? So that you don't miss the mercy and the goodness God really wants to give you. Let me say that again. Turn around from your heart and give yourself fully back to God so that you don't miss the mercy and goodness God really wants to give you. 
Now, like I said, when I'm zooming along in life, I, like you, am not always so eager or quick to turn around. Like Bruce in the movie, there have been many times where I've driven right past all the signs. And as a result, I've missed out on on the goodness from God that I could have had. Let me just give you one example. Back when I started seminary a number of years ago, Anne and I had just been married less than a year before. And we were still getting to know each other. We were learning to trust each other. We were working through our differences. And in my second year of school, um, Josiah came along, our first child. And so now we were learning how to, how to cope uh, with sleepless nights. <laughs> and, and Josiah was a smart kid right from the time he was born just about. So he wasn't content to lie on the blanket and stare into space like some kids do. No, he wanted to be picked up. He wanted to be carried around so he could look at everything. And so it seemed one of us was, was constantly holding him, carrying him. And as young children, uh, uh, sorry, as young parents, if we felt like children sometimes, <laughs> fairly newly married and sleep deprived, this was all a big adjustment that we were going through. And we didn't always handle it very well. Uh, meanwhile, I'm in seminary. I'm uh, loving meeting all these great people and having these deep conversations about God. And my, my brain is being stretched um, I'm enjoying this, but, it, but it's also a lot of stress because I'm trying to read hundreds of pages of dense theology each week and to digest it all. And, and yet, Anne is wanting more of my help, and she's craving more of my attention. She, she loves her baby so much, but she's also desperate for some adult conversation. <laughs> but, but I'm resisting her because I'm in seminary mode, and, and I'm overwhelmed with all the studying that I have to do. You see, I have a hard time doing anything halfway especially as I'm preparing to be a pastor, which is something I'm passionate about. So Anne's begging me for more help, more time, because she's really struggling. And, and she's challenging me, saying, come on, isn't getting B, a B good enough sometimes? <laughs> I'm your wife. I have a newborn. I need you right now. But the truth was that, that doing great at school was really an idol for me. It was something that that I was finding my worth in, something that I felt compelled to chase after so I could feel like a success. And yet the irony was, all this study that I was doing was all about God, and it was for God, the, the God who says, my greatest command is this, love your neighbor as yourself, and husbands, love your wives as yourself. And so the signs were there, and Anne was asking me to love her, but I was blowing right by them, not getting it, not slowing down, not turning around, not repenting. Well, that was 15 years ago, and somewhere along the way since, Anne's forgiven me. (laughs) But guess what? It took our marriage a while to recover from my ability to see the signs and to repent. And so I and we missed, in those years of seminary, we missed out on some of the goodness that God was wanting to give us. And this is what today's passage is about. It's, it's about the prophet Joel coming to God's people and pointing out a big sign that God has put in their path, urging them to turn around, to repent, so they don't miss out on the goodness that God wants to give them. As we look again at this passage this morning, let's begin with the actual historical situation Joel was addressing. To find out, all you have to do is go back and read Joel chapter 1. That was alluded to at the end of Joel chapter 2, if you were listening. Joel there describes a devastating invasion of locusts, which has just taken place. 
This army of bugs has invaded, uh, it has swarmed in, and it has eaten everything in its path. Let's pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 1. Listen, Joel says, all who live in the land, has anything like this ever happened in your days? Verse 4, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Verse 7, this army has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Verse 10, the fields are ruined. The ground is, is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The olive oil fails. Now, it's hard for us today to grasp just how devastating a plague like this was. I mean, we're not farmers. If we run out of food, we just go to the grocery store and there's always some there. But, but just imagine if the only food you had was what you could grow in your big garden and in your fields. And then this bunch of insects comes through and it eats everything you were growing. And, and not just in your garden, but in the fields of all your neighbors too. And so there's no food anywhere. For those of you who are Laura Engel Wilder fans, you'll probably remember on the, in, uh, on the bank of Plum Creek, her description of the great grasshopper plague, which came through her area of Minnesota one year. She describes it like this. A cloud was over the sun. It was not like any cloud they had ever seen before. It was a cloud of something like snowflakes, but they were larger than snowflakes and thin and glittering. Plunk. Something hit Laura's head and fell to the ground. She looked down and saw the largest grasshopper she had ever seen. Then huge brown grasshoppers were hitting the ground all around her, hitting her head and her face and her arms. The cloud was hailing grasshoppers. The cloud was grasshoppers. The air whirred and the roof went on sounding like a roof in a hailstorm. Then Laura heard another sound. One big sound made of tiny nips and snips, and gnawings. The wheat, Pa shouted. The wind could not blow loud enough to hide the sound of their jaws, nipping, gnawing, chewing. They ate all the green garden rows. They ate the green potato tops. They ate the grass, and the willow leaves, and the green plum thickets, and the small green plums. They ate the whole prairie, bare and brown. The prophet Joel is speaking into a situation much like that. All the food gone, just like that. A national catastrophe that that Israel experienced long ago. And and here was Joel at that time, Joel's message from God to them. This locust plague is a sign. It's a message from God. It's a wake-up call meant to get your attention. Don't miss the sign. Because here's the bad news that Joel delivers and and Doug read it at the beginning of chapter 2. You think this locust plague is bad? Guess what? If you don't turn around quick, something far worse is coming. A far worse army is coming than a locust army. A real military army is coming from the north. A ruthless army and it is going to invade and destroy. This is at the beginning of of Joel 2. And guess what Joel says? God is sending this army. Why? It's judgment on you as God's people because you have rejected God. 
You have turned away from God. Your hearts have strayed far from God so that your lives are not being lived anything close to what God is asking of you. So Joel's basically saying this, this first locust plague, which is so devastating to you, it's a sign. It's a big sign in the road of your life telling you to turn around, telling you to turn your hearts and your lives back to God. Because if you continue going down the road you're on, watch out, a far worse, far more final judgment of God is coming. Heavy passage, huh? Wasn't it heavy as Doug read it? full of of doom and judgment for God's people back then. But it also reminds each of us today, as we know elsewhere from the Bible, that a similar doom and judgment and worse is waiting for this world and for each one of us if we don't turn back to God. But guess what else? As, As Doug continued to read the passage, we heard that Joel's message is also full of mercy. After all, if God didn't love his people, God wouldn't bother to warn them that judgment was coming. If a bridge is out on the road ahead, why do you put a sign warning drivers to stop? Because you care about them. You don't want them to perish. You're concerned for them. And so you put up a sign as a warning in hopes that they'll turn around and avoid the destruction and the danger that lies ahead. And that's what Joel's message from God is. It's a sign It's a warning given in love, given in compassion. After all, what does Joel say after he urges God's people to repent? In verse 13 of chapter 2, he says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. God is gracious. And compassionate. And so what do we find again and again in God's word? We find that when people repent, when they turn back to God, what does God do? God relents. God turns from his judgment. God forgives his people and blesses them instead. And in fact, as we heard further on in Joel 2, that's exactly what God promises to do. This is why the Apostle Paul reminds God's people in the book of Romans Don't you know that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance? It's God's kindness to us. God's kindness to give us a sign, to give us a warning that we would turn around. And God's kindness when we do turn around to forgive us, to welcome us back, to bless us instead of punishing us. And so again, here's Joel's urgent message to God's people in this text. Turn around from your heart. Give yourself wholly back to God. Why? So that you don't experience God's coming destruction and judgment, but rather that you experience God's mercy and goodness instead. Or as I put it more simply in the key biblical truth for today, see the sign, turn around, and enjoy God's goodness. This is Joel's appeal, and, and it's urgent It's urgent in three ways. First, it's urgent because it applies to everyone. Second, it's it's urgent in, in that it calls for an immediate response. And third, it's urgent in that it calls for an earnest, heartfelt response. So first, its urgency includes everyone. Verse 16, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, 
Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests weep. Joel is calling all the people to take note and to turn back to God. Second, notice that the immediacy of Joel's urging. The bride and bridegroom have just gotten married. The ceremony has just taken place, and they've gone off on their wedding night to consummate their marriage, one of the highlights of their lives. And Joel says, wait, 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 stop. (laughs) Stop. This is so urgent. Call them back. Their wedding night will have to wait. Seriously. Because we've all got to turn back to God right now before it's too late. This is urgent. Third, Paul urges, or Joel urges, that we be earnest in our repentance. Verse 12, fast, weep. Mourn, he says. Take this seriously. Take drastic action. Don't just mute the television during commercials and squeeze in a quick prayer of apology. But no, no, stop what you're doing. Humble yourself. Fast. Choose to go hungry. Deny yourself to, to, to um, express the, the, the seriousness of, of, of what your heart needs to do. Rend your hearts and not just your garments, verse 13. Don't confess your sin just because it's what everyone is doing or just because there's a spot in the worship service where you're expected to do it. Certainly don't do it for show. No, be earnest. Truly mean it. Verse 12, even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your hearts. God wants our hearts. So the repentance Joel calls God's people to is urgent in three ways. It's for everyone. It requires immediacy and it must be earnest. First again, it's for everyone because everyone matters to God. It's not just the leaders who should repent or, or those who, who are particularly bad people. No, we all go astray. We, we, we all miss too many of the signs that God sends us. And God's judgment, the coming destruction, looms before us all. So we all have to turn back to God. Second, again, repentance requires immediacy. Because the longer we wait to turn back to God, the closer we get to the judgment, to the destruction, which is at the end of the road. And the more time we waste moving away from God, the longer we miss out on enjoying the forgiveness and the blessings that could be ours. And third again, repentance must be earnest. It's it's our hearts that God wants most. God wants willing hearts, not just grudging hearts. So what does Joel's urgent message mean for us today as God's people? What does it mean for those of us who are seeking as a community to follow Jesus? It means that we need to develop a culture of repentance. A culture where it's normal when we mess up, and we do, to see the sign, to stop, to turn around, and to move back toward God. A culture where we give our whole selves back to God so we don't miss God's mercy and goodness. Let me give you two examples of of what such a culture can look like. The first one uh, is from when I was in college. I've, I've shared with you before that I was part of an amazing Christian fellowship on campus. And, and the highlight of each summer, after we finished finals in, in May, 
uh, was that our student leaders and some others from our fellowship would go off together uh, for a week of what InterVarsity Christian Fellowship called chapter camp. Uh, at, at chapter camp, we'd be together with fellowships, with chapters from other colleges in the region, and we'd be learning together, we'd be playing together, uh, we'd be making plans for the coming year. And one year at camp, we had just come off, our fellowship had just come off a spring semester where there had been a fair bit of grumpiness and complaining and criticizing in our fellowship. And a couple of the student leaders were, were starting to take note of it. And it wasn't sitting well with them. It was, it was bothering them and they were sensing that it wasn't right. So do you know what they did? They called for a special meeting one evening at camp for everyone from our college fellowship to come together. And they brought their concerns to the rest of us. And, and they pointed it out. And then they read to us from Ephesians 4.29, which says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building one another up according to their needs. And guess what? We all saw the sign. We realized what was coming out of our mouths was, was not good. It was not helpful for building one another up. And so we turned around and we repented. We, we made a covenant together, actually. We, we signed a, a paper where we all committed, based on Ephesians 4.29, to make sure that no grumbling or complaining or criticizing or gossip came out of our mouths. But instead, that we would make a point to encourage one another. Well, guess what happened to our campus fellowship the following fall when 30-some when students out of the 100-person or so fellowship came back on campus speaking only encouraging words to one another. It didn't take long for it to change the whole atmosphere of, of our fellowship. It made us as a group of people all the more fun and all the more attractive to be around. As students felt loved, they felt encouraged, the atmosphere felt positive, and so we all enjoyed more of God's goodness as a result. The great thing about repentance is that when we turn around, when we move back to God, we get to enjoy more of God's goodness. And we often experience more of his blessing. That's one example of what a culture of repentance can look like. Let me give you a second more personal and more recent example. I have a passion, as you know, to live a Christian life which isn't individualistic, isn't just me as a Lone Ranger Christian and you as a Lone Ranger Christian, each doing our own private things for Jesus. But rather that... It's a passion that I find and that we each find our place as part of a spiritual family. A family which is, is doing life together in natural everyday ways and, and engaging together in, in God's mission. That we're a spiritual family on mission together as Nancy talked a little bit about earlier. So I have a passion to, to open my life to others at from CBC to, to do life with some of you, to, to follow Jesus together, and, and then for us to naturally invite others who don't know Jesus into our lives. So that my friends from church and my friends outside of church are, are uh, naturally getting to know one another, and, and those who don't know Jesus are getting a taste of, of the goodness of the Jesus that we know and, and are getting drawn toward him. That's my passion. It's, it's to be part of a spiritual family like that and, and that you'd all be part of a spiritual family like that too. And Anne, my wife, really respects that passion. But she's also more practical than I am. And so do you know what that passion sounds like to her? 
It, it sounds like a lot of cooking and house cleaning. <laughs> right, ladies? <laughs> yes. Having people over, opening your home, it takes a lot of work. And, and I can forget that Anne has a full-time job. Because she teaches our kids at home. You see, Anne has a passion, a passion which I share as well, that we disciple our own kids, that we invest the few years we have with them right now intensely and intentionally so that they grow up well-equipped to love others and to serve God. And, And doing that, homeschooling them, takes a lot of time, a lot of energy, especially for Anne. And so when she's already up to her eyeballs in her responsibilities, and I'm sharing with her my passion, which requires more time and more energy, Anne wants to be supportive, but but guess how it sometimes feels to her? It feels overwhelming. And if we're not careful, this tension between my passion and, and her passion can become a tug of war. I can pressure her, and she can begin feeling guilty, and before you know it, we're both doing this. Well, into the situation a couple years ago, God put a sign in my path. God's Spirit convicted me with this question. Why do you expect for Anne to support your passion when you aren't doing a great job of supporting hers? Husbands are supposed to love their wives as themselves, right? They're supposed to be spiritual leaders. So lead, lead by example. We're supposed to serve our wives like Jesus did, laying down our lives for them. So God was challenging me, why don't you trust me with your passion and start doing what I've already told you in my word to do, serve your wife by supporting her passion. That was a big sign in the road. And and so I had to repent. I had to turn around. I had to turn back to God and I had to apologize to Anne. Um, and to stop pressuring her so much, and to focus on doing what I could do to encourage her, to support her, to help her reach her passion, which, passion, which after all, really is my passion too. And so I've, as I've done that, guess what? We've been able to uncross our arms, to come together as a team, and then to find creative ways to both do a better job, not a perfect job, but a better job of supporting and sharing each other's passions. So how about you? How about us as a church? What does it look like for us to create a culture of repentance? A culture where both individually and together we are constantly helping each other to to see the signs, to, to turn around so that we can enjoy more of God's goodness. Is there a sign, a Kairos moment for those of us who've been using that language which, which God has been putting up in your path that you really need to finally notice? Is there a sign that, that you see for our church that, that maybe you need to share with a few CBC friends or, or with your small group or with the leaders of the church so that we can discern together whether God is calling us all as a church to repentance? Or how about our nation? After all, it's a whole nation that Joel is actually addressing originally in this passage. And the next couple of weeks are a critical time for our nation, right? The election, November 6th, 8th, Tuesday, coming up a week from Tuesday. 
a lot of us have been wringing our hands about this election cycle, right? We've been complaining about the candidates, about how there's no good choice. But are we seeing it as a sign? Have we taken time to to humble ourselves, to, to turn around from our heart, and to pray that our nation will turn around? A lot of Christians around the country are feeling like that's just what we need to do. If you're interested, there's even a website called revivalmatters.com. We put the information in your bulletin. And they're calling for a week, uh, a a national week of repentance this coming week. Um, And the information's in there if you want to participate. I'm going to participate. So how about taking a day this week to fast, to not eat, to spend some time praying, to confess our own as well as our nation's sins to God, and to beg God to have mercy on us. And to help us turn around. So for our nation. For our church. For ourselves as individuals. Joel earnestly pleads for us to respond. Even now declares the Lord. Turn to me with all your heart. I want to give us a minute as we close in prayer to do that right now. To begin that. Let's pray. God, show us the signs that we may be motoring right past. Turn us around. Call to us. Plead with us out of your goodness. Help us to realize the danger which is ahead and the goodness which awaits us if we turn around and come back to you. Turn us around, we pray. And I want to Give us all a minute now just to pray silently along those lines.